Welcome back. I'm Amber Kelly, and this is An Unknown Compelling Force. I had a friend recently ask me what my greatest fear was. I think he was looking for a more in-depth or personal conversation, but my answer was not being able to breathe. That will always be my answer. There have been too many times in my life that I've had that experience of not being able to breathe, and if I can get a little weird with you for just a minute, I'm pretty convinced this is how I'm going to go. These fears all came flooding back to me as I was researching avalanches for this episode. I watched a lot of videos, thanks to GoPro cameras, of people who were being covered in avalanches. There's one in particular that I was watching late at night through the cracks between my fingers. I'll post the link, but this is what it sounds like. And it goes on forever. It was some of the most difficult footage I've ever endured, and I had to watch it all the way to the end because the video title said that this was an avalanche rescue. Stopping in the middle would be like turning off the radio in the middle of a song and having it stuck in your head for the rest of the day. So as I sat there watching and ironically holding my breath, my mind went to my closest brush with death. I would like to introduce all of you to John Mallory. He has nothing to do with this story, except for something. John Mallory saved my life. It was maybe around 2005, and the play we were touring with was slated for a keynote performance the next morning at a conference in Florida. Our producer called and asked us to make an appearance at the reception and encourage people to wake up in the morning in time for our gig. I just checked into my hotel, but gladly, or not as gladly, agreed. I took a few minutes to sit down, collect myself before making my way downstairs. I'm actually glad I'm telling this story to a larger public because it deserves to be told and I've yet to figure out how to place this incident in my life. I eventually made my way downstairs to the lobby and the soiree. John had beat me there and was standing in a circle of strapping young men. So maybe the prospects for the night weren't looking that bad. Anyway, we chatted and socialized and soireed, but I was really hungry after what seemed like an age of travel, so I excused myself and made my way to the crudité spread for a bit of raw veggie and ranch dip delight. I returned to the circle of men, but shortly after I started to indulge in my snack, I swallowed a bit of raw broccoli and rather failed to swallow it. It all got a bit stuck. I thought I could force it down, but pretty soon became self-conscious that I was making terribly unattractive faces in front of my gaggle of men, so I stepped over to the side so as not to embarrass myself. And after valiant attempts, I realized that I was not going to be able to swallow this broccoli and I would have to cough it up, which would draw more attention to me in the corner, so I went and found an empty ballroom so I could retch in private. And I coughed and I hacked until this moment came. You don't think it's real. At least I didn't until it happened. I coughed and hacked until the broccoli lodged itself in my throat. And I realized this is the moment I've heard about, when you can't make a sound or breathe and you have to get the Heimlich maneuver or you die. I wasn't afraid at all. I immediately thought, John can fix it. (laughs) I've told this story a lot. Like I said, I get it out because I don't know where to keep it. And this time, though, as I was considering it, I stepped out of myself for a minute and started wondering, what was that experience like for John? Does he tell this story? Does he still think about it? What must it have felt like to know that you're responsible for the life of a friend? So I thought I would ask him. And if I'm curious, maybe you are too. So here it is. This is the story from John's point of view. Uh, 
2005 in Orlando, Florida. I'm at a conference with Amber Kelly, and I had just uh, been working with her for a few months. So we've gotten a really good rapport. We were friends, but we we only kind of kind of scratched the surface of our friendship at that point. And it's a large, crowded conference for a reception where there's food and there's um, there's some refreshments and and it's basically a networking event. Uh, she goes off while I'm talking to a few people that I knew from college and kind of rehashing some stories and laughing. And then Amber comes running over, um, very, very excited about something, and she's hopping <laughs> up and down. And um, so I and the other guys I'm talking with were kind of amused because she's she's a exciting personality and always one to entertain. Um, but then um, when I look at her face, um, I realize she's not... Um, trying to to be entertaining, she's not trying to to make everyone laugh. There's nothing but complete panic in her face. And um, at that point, uh, really without thinking, uh, um, there are other gestures. She's pointing at her throat. She's giving um, the international signs that I can't breathe. I'm choking um, and asking for help. And we didn't pick up on this at first, but it really was her eyes that communicated the fact that she was in complete fear and looking for help. So at that point, without thinking, I grabbed her and flipped her around um, to start to perform the Heimlich Maneuver, which I'd never actually performed in a live situation. I'm recalling memories from, from Boy Scouts training, and like, this is what you may never use, but here's the Heimlich Maneuver. But uh, How long ago um, was Boy Scout training? Oh, God, that, that training probably was at least 10, 15 years old. Okay. So it was a while. Um, but, um, I, um, kind of put my, uh, my fist in her belly button and pulled in to try and dislodge whatever's in her throat the way I remembered. And I am not a big man, but Amber is a tiny, tiny person. And so I, um, kind of pulled what I thought, this is probably good effort and nothing happened. So then I pulled uh, a second thrust and the third one harder and harder um, kind of afraid of hurting her, but, but on the other hand, like my blood's pumping realizing that, you know, a little bruise is different from making sure she can breathe again. And it wasn't until the fourth or fifth, um, attempt that this piece of broccoli that was lodged in her throat finally came out. And, um, at that point, um, she and I like walked over away from, everyone else at the reception, because we, we'd made a, a small scene, even though this only lasted maybe a few seconds. And um, as we walked to the side, that's when kind of, I guess, my adrenaline started to wear off. Because instead of going into, have to fix this situation, I have to admit that that's when I got shaky, because the, the context, the ramifications of it all kind of slowly started to hit me. Mm-hmm. Um, that I... Um, she couldn't breathe, and I luckily was able to help her start breathing again. But all those thoughts of like, God, it took a while for that to work. And if I hadn't known what to do, and all those things hit after the whole situation had died down, whereas in that one moment, it was just it was this weird kind of really basic instinctual response. So I think pretty much every human being has and doesn't know it until they're really tested. We all have an instinctual response, but maybe we don't know what that response will be until it's tested. The focus, though, on both our parts went immediately to the other person and their role in the situation. 
Amber needs help, and John can fix it. Let me tell you the most disappointing part of this story. When the broccoli did dislodge from my throat, it did not shoot projectile style across the room like they tell you in the cartoons. It only moved enough for me to cough it up and start foaming in the mouth like a rabid dog from the asphyxiation. Needless to say, the guys were not impressed with this look. Actually, I'm sure they were, but it wasn't the impression I was going for. It's interesting. One of the things that uh, I was trying to remember was how many times you had to attempt it before it actually worked. And in my head, it was like seven or eight. <laughs> <laughs> that could be accurate because this is, this is you know, almost a decade ago. But um, I remember it being a lot more than I thought and... And having this moment of, of having these thoughts of, am I doing this right? Is this not working? And, and and a little more panic kind of setting in. Yes, that is very similar to my situation, which, as I tell it, is my first thought. I didn't even feel that I had that much panic on my face. I'm sure I did. But my thought at that moment was, John Mallory can fix it. <laughs> and then I had the exact same thought after a few tries of, John Mallory's probably never done this before. <laughs> I'm not as certain anymore that this is going to work. So you would say your initial reaction was pure adrenaline. Yeah, I'd say, say pure adrenaline. Um, and when you, see, when you see a situation that you, you know or you think needs to be fixed, but the immediacy is just... Um, it just—I mean, if you see like a child running out into the street and there's a truck coming, you don't think I should grab this child. It's just that natural, instinctual reaction. That's a little bit of adrenaline and a little bit also like you know, kind of evolution kicking in of like save this thing now and yes. then think of the context seconds later. You just do grab the child without thinking. Exactly. I appreciate after the fact while you were having everything flow. Uh, into your kind of realization of the moment that you actually still took care of me. I don't know if you remember, you like put one arm around me and with the other arm as you were walking, you grabbed a bottle of water and <laughs> walked me out of the room and just said, oh. are you okay? <laughs> no, I, I, I didn't remember that until just now. But, uh, <laughs> but good, you're welcome. <laughs> Great. Uh, Save your life and quality service. John Mallory. <laughs> Perfect. Remember how we talked before about what ifs? My mind for the following couple of weeks was swarming with them. What if John wasn't there and I didn't know anyone to ask for help and I took too long choosing and I passed out and no one knew why and they didn't do that thing where they check your air pipe first thing because who does that? I've seen people pass out and I've never seen anyone stick their fingers down their throat. What if there was no one there at all and I had to try to do the Heimlich myself on a chair? There's no way that would ever work. John is a pretty strong, able-bodied, level-headed fella, and it took some serious effort on his part and some bruised ribs on my part. I was a panicked girl of about 115 pounds of no way this is happening. I could go on, but it all boils down to what if I had been killed by broccoli? I'm really interested in your after the fact. When I, when I was talking about this, I talked about the what-ifs that kind of went through my brain for the next couple of weeks. Sure. Um... And curious uh, how or if even that affected you, what that was, what the questions were, what your thoughts were after the fact. Um, well, it kind of, if you're looking at the after, after the fact and different stages, immediately as we were, as immediately as the broccoli came out of your throat and you could breathe again, um, my physiological response finally kicked in where it was, 
as I mentioned, like my breathing was really heightened. My hands were a little shaky, probably sweating a little bit. I don't really remember if that was the case or not, but eh, probably. <laughs> um, and then afterwards was more was also relief. Like there's the physiological response, and then kind of logic was able to kick back into my brain instead of just instinctual reaction. I was like, "Oh, Amber's alive! This is so good. <laughs> if, she's old, if she was not to be alive, that would be bad." Like really, really basic stuff. So um, if we were to go there for just a second, if it hadn't worked, could you imagine what that would have been like? So to have been the first person that you turn to in a moment of panic for really a really, uh, truly a very basic response, like a first aid response that most people have had training in in some kind, even though mine was probably over a decade old. <laughs> Um, if if I had tried to restore your breathing and um, it had not been successful and you had passed away, I I really don't know if I can fully understand the kind of guilt, the complex level of guilt and the pervasive level of guilt that I might harbor even to this day. It was a truly unfair question. I went to John to save me again by trying to get him to fill in the blank of what it would have been like if it hadn't worked. If I had died. We think about it, though. And maybe our brains just won't let us go there. This is the unknown, which is many people's greatest fear. When I asked John if there was anything else he wanted to say, he came out with this interesting nugget. I shouldn't have been entirely surprised because John is a generally positive force as it is, but he mentioned another side effect we may not have considered. It... It was, um, this, this sounds strange, but immediately after, all this is kind of slowly coming back to me now as we're talking about it, mm-hmm. that um, strangely enough, immediately after that, like the few weeks and months afterwards, I felt a lot of pride um, in Good. my ability to deal with a stressful situation. You should. Yeah, and it's a weird, it's, it's a weird thing to say because it sounds like it's a very self-serving response because it, truly it was your life that was in danger. And, and I think a number of people in that room could have done the exact same thing I would have done, maybe a little even more efficiently. <laughs> it just, just <laughs> took me several times to finally get that piece of broccoli out of your throat. But um, it was interesting to look back at what was a very you know, frightening, adrenaline-driven, kind of instinctual moment uh, and think, you know, the way I responded to that, I'd feel more confident if I would respond to other moment of crises that I hope, of course, never happen. But mm-hmm. if they would, if they would happen, there's there's less fear that I would just completely freeze up and panic, and that I would instead respond in a way that'd be more effective. So I'm glad you were alive. A and B, it gave me a little boost in my self-esteem. It's very interesting to bring it back up because I'm I'm currently in a clinical psychology doctoral program at the University of Denver, mm-hmm. where I'm working towards getting all the clinical skills to treat um, mental health um, and behavioral health issues that anyone focuses on. Uh, and so it could be what what we typically look at as severe mental health issues, if it's something that's psychotic or schizophrenia and things like that. Mm-hmm. But there's also the type of mental health um, difficulties that can evolve from uh, what we would think of as like regular occurrences that happen to people. So if it's a car crash, if it's um, other things like that, the body like and the mind kind of respond very uniquely 
to stress and to trauma. So my focus is to go more into working with military personnel. And, and I'm uh, actually I commissioned into the Navy about six months ago so that when I graduate from this program, I'll be an active duty Navy officer, but I'll be serving primarily as a psychologist. So it's going to be something similar to um, kind of what Amber went through. Um, and to use the, the words of one of my supervisors, it's normal people going through extraordinary circumstances. And we don't always think of broccoli as extraordinary circumstance, <laughs> but, but experiencing a, a moment of truly life-threatened. Like, that's, that's an extraordinary circumstance that can impact anyone, and clearly we're talking about this a decade later. So, so oddly enough, I think that that experience I had with Amber at a conference 10 years ago, it, it, paints a, it, it impacts my work now because it gives me a perspective that uh, not everyone has had. Fantastic. So you're moving on from saving me to saving the world. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just start with Amber and then build out. That should be everyone's <laughs> goal in life. But why am I telling you all this? The question really is, what is it like to be responsible for the lives of your friends? How does this affect our behavior? When fear sets in, what do we do? How do we react? What if in 1959 on Mount Kalat's call, there was an avalanche? And the fear I felt watching those GoPro videos is the fear that the hikers felt times reality. Here are some things I've learned about avalanches. The deadliest avalanche happened in Peru in May of 1970. It was instigated by an earthquake and buried a couple of towns, killing over 20,000 people. Second on the deadly scale occurred in the Alps during World War I, posing a bigger threat to Austrian and Italian troops than the explosives which caused the avalanches. 10,000 troops were killed by the snow and ice alone. A real threat, these avalanches. But is this what threatened and killed the hikers on Dyatlov Pass? It's many people's go-to answer, but here's the thing, or things. There are two types of avalanches, loose snow and slab avalanches. These are pretty self-explanatory, but basically break down into a lot of snow overloading and falling off the mountain, or a significant slab of built-up snow breaking off and releasing. The latter is the more deadly. These usually occur on a slope greater than a 30-degree grade. The slope of Kalatsikal was only 16 degrees above the tent and about 25 degrees below. There are often no trees in avalanche areas, as the tops of the mountains are fairly free of them due to the elements. When it reaches the tree line, the more intense avalanches can uproot the trees and carry them along in the flow. There weren't any trees in the area of the hiker's tent. They had to trudge over a mile to get to the tree line, where they were found. On that note, though, the tent was not uprooted or even moved. It had dipped a little with a pocket of snow on top but it was still standing, and everything inside of it was neatly arranged and undisturbed. These avalanches can be caused by heavy snow, vibrations, steep slopes, or warming weather, and most often, human activity. There is an old myth that human voices are enough to disrupt the resting powder and slabs, but we've had enough of myths for now, and the facts have debunked this idea over and over again. There was some heavy snowfall on February 1st, 1959, but the rest of the conditions are failing to complete this picture of a possible avalanche. But let's say you thought you were going to be buried in an avalanche. Here are some suggestions for surviving. These are some things they may have considered doing should an avalanche be heading their way. There are a lot of references to water survival when it comes to avalanches, and I suppose that's not so surprising. Snow is simply a solid form of water. 
One of the suggestions if you're caught in an avalanche is to swim against the fall and try to be covered by less quantity. This is not such a good idea if you're caught in a riptide. On the other hand, the rule of being caught in a riptide is to swim at a diagonal. This only works in the case of avalanches if your reflexes are somewhat comparable to Bruce Lee. Can you manage to sidestep an avalanche? My friend Miggy says it takes three seconds for reality to sink in. Miggy would be buried. If you're more like Flash Gordon, if the snow starts falling out from under you, you can simply jump above it. I also don't have a lot of faith in this plan. Even if you manage to achieve this feat, I imagine it would be short-lived as the snow below you has nothing to stand on and would likely give way. One of the three ways that people die from avalanches is by drowning from the precipitation in the air once they're covered. It's recommended that you dig a pocket around your mouth so that you can breathe for about 30 minutes as you wait for help, because if you're buried by more than a foot of snow, you cannot dig yourself out. The snow becomes the equivalent of concrete. Your best bet is to wait for someone above to dig you out. If you can keep something facing upward, this will help them find you. Funny thing, though, think about it. You've been tumbling and covered, and now you're surrounded by white. So which way is up? The suggestion here is that you spit and see which way it runs. This tells you which way is down. Go the other way, please. You should also take in a lot of air as you go down and expand your ribs so that you'll have room to breathe once you're buried. I hope that none of us ever have any use for this information, but there it is. I'll give you this right off the bat. I don't think the hikers were killed by an avalanche. It seems entirely implausible. Yes, an avalanche could cause the injuries like crushed skulls and ribs, but if that had happened, those hikers would not have survived it. They would not have been able to walk miles away after that. They couldn't have been carried because there were nine sets of footprints in the snow. And those injured hikers seemed to have made it the furthest and the longest, being the last to die. Also, the tent was not buried in snow, nor were the footprints which survived for 25 days. There had been a snowstorm that day, but the slope of the mountain makes any chance of an avalanche incredibly unlikely. There's no history of avalanches on Klotzikal, and there's certainly not been any since 1959. I'll concede this much. Maybe it was fear of an avalanche that sent the hikers running and the elements took care of the rest. Maybe they heard something that sounded like an avalanche and fled. Realistically, though, they were very familiar with ski tourism and I imagine had more facts about avalanches than I've shared here. I doubt they thought of an avalanche as even a remote possibility in this situation or they would never have set their tent up there in the first place. They would also be aware that once they heard the start of an avalanche, they would have a maximum of 10 seconds to get out of the way. They would not have had time to cut out and move everyone to safety, so why abandon the tent? And even if they did, if this was the case, they heard a sound, and the adrenaline kicked in, and they simply reacted before thinking it through, why would they head down the hill in the trajectory of the avalanche rather than trying to move out of the way? Once they were out of the tent, they would have realized that it was not an avalanche. The walk to the tree line and the conditions of that evening without shoes would have taken them more than an hour, maybe two plenty of time to realize that returning to the tent where their clothes and shoes and provisions are is a much better idea than submitting to the elements in their stocking feet and underclothes. They had to have known their survival time in that state was about six to eight hours max. The facts simply don't support the avalanche theory, largely because there was no avalanche. But if it wasn't an avalanche, what was it? What struck enough fear in the hikers that they turned to their friends knowing they could only rely on each other and run together from their shelter? Who was responsible for who? What must it have been like to be the one needing help as well as the one others were looking to for their own survival? Where, then, do you find the hope? It was hopeless, but they chose to run anyway. Why? Why?